Hey, welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Check us out on the web at missiodeschicago.com. God, we approach you this morning expectant. Um, we approach you ready to receive your word, not as something um, to be earned or to be understood, or um, some, not as something that we can grasp or control, um, but as something that we are going to receive as a gift from you. Would you be present with us in this time? Would you be speaking to us in this time? That's our prayer this morning, Lord. So in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we're starting a new series on 1 Peter. We're going to be doing this pretty much until Brian gets back, so um, the whole summer. And I'm really, really excited because what Peter does is he, in 1 Peter is he focuses our attention on Jesus. He points to Jesus and he says, this is who Jesus is and this is what Jesus has done. And because of this, you can be a people who have hope. And the way he starts um, kind of this journey for us is he starts by talking about the question of identity, that question of who am I? And I think this is a a question we all wrestle with um, from time to time, maybe sometimes more um, than others. I'm reminded of uh, when I was in middle school, and my parents had never let me get a MySpace, but they let me get a Facebook for whatever reason. Um, and so I'm, I was creating my first Facebook in, in middle school, and um, I chose this lovely profile picture. Um, I thought I was pretty cool at the time. Um, and right under that profile picture, I, um, there's this little Facebook box that says, describe who you are. And that's a terrible question to ask a middle schooler, because no middle schooler has any idea who they are. Um, and so I, I thought about it for a really, really long time. I wrestled with it probably longer than I should have, and I came up with, with this. Um, my name is Reed. I love Jesus, music, and coffee in that order. I thought it was pretty smart, pretty solid. Um, there was just one problem. Um, one of those things is a lie. I, I, I loved Jesus, for sure. I was really into music. In middle school, I kind of hated coffee. Um, <laughs> It was just, coffee was so cool. Our town had just gotten its first Starbucks. Um, all of the high schoolers, we would go and we'd drink coffee at Starbucks. And so it just, it was like the thing to like. I mean, coffee's still cool to like, let's be real. And I have since, like, app- learned to appreciate the taste, mostly because Amy drinks black coffee, and I couldn't keep just pouring cream into my coffee while Amy drank black coffee. It just didn't seem right. Um, so, so, yeah, I would still go to Starbucks, but I wouldn't get coffee. Well... I'd get a caramel frappuccino, which is like the least coffee drink you can get at Starbucks. It's not quite at the level of the strawberry frappuccino. The strawberry <laughs> frappuccino doesn't have any coffee in it. Um, caramel frappuccinos, they have a little coffee. So the, my point that I'm making, <laughs> I, I, there's a point, um, is, is our identities are incredibly fragile things. Often we build our identities. Maybe they're not on outright lies like mine, but they're, they're things that are constantly shifting. And how, how would you answer that question? Describe who you are. How would you answer the question, who am I? And I think even, even the more mature and honest expressions of our identity can be incredibly fragile. Um, some of us would answer that question by um, talking about what we do, our vocation. We would say, this is the industry I work in. We'd say, um, I'm a mother or a student. That, that's who I am. Um, some of us, and certainly this would be a predominant way to answer this question in other cultures, would define ourselves by relationships. 
Um, we'd say, I'm, I'm married to this person, I'm dating this person, I'm, I'm the son of these people and the um, grandchild of these people. Um, some of us would choose to define ourselves by our, our hobbies. Um, I play music, I, um, I'm an outdoors person, I go running, I go boating, whatever, whatever that thing might be that kind of defines who you are. But these categories are far too fragile to compose our entire identity because they can be very, very easily disrupted. What happens to our identity if it's completely built into our vocation and we lose our job? What happens to an identity that's built around a relationship with a boyfriend or a girlfriend or even with a spouse and that relationship goes through a really, really difficult season? What happens to our identity as like a hiker and an outdoors person who lives in the Northwest and then moves to Chicago and now they, like the only hiking options are in Wisconsin where it's just so-so? Identity built on these categories, or really anything else, is just prime for disruption. And anytime this happens, we're, we're cast headlong into an identity crisis. And the beautiful thing about First Peter is he's explaining Jesus and explaining why he holds hope for us, is that he is also writing to Christians who are experiencing disruption. He's also writing to Christians who are in the midst of an identity crisis, uh, Peter probably wrote this letter um, in the early 60s. Um, he had just gotten to Rome. Um, Peter actually ends up um, being martyred for his faith. He's killed because he's a Christian around the time of 65 AD. So this letter is probably written sometime between 60 and 65 and AD, um, 60 and 65 AD. And it's written to these churches in Asia Minor. And this is at a time when it's becoming increasingly difficult to be a Christian in the Roman Empire. You see, when Christianity started out, um, it was just kind of considered a sect of Judaism. And it made sense. Like, these were Jewish believers who said, Jesus is Messiah. We're going to follow him. They still worshiped in the temple. Um, and so there wasn't really a distinction between Christians and Jews. But as time continues to go on, um, they begin to part ways. We see this in the book of Acts as there's increasing hostility between the two groups. And as Christianity became more distinct from Judaism, they lost some of the religious protections that Jews had. Um, the Roman Empire was really into anything that was super old, and the Jewish faith was super old. So they didn't have to participate in some of the, the civil and, um, and religious pagan ceremonies that the Roman Empire forced everyone else to do. And so as Christianity and Judaism drifted apart, um, Christians were beginning to lose these protections. And um, there was a great deal of hostility towards Christians uh, during this time. I want to show you a, a picture of, um, this is a wall that was pretty much dug up in the Roman Empire. You can't see it super clearly. Go to the next slide. Um, it's a line drawing. It might show up. Yep. So this is just, this is a tracing of that picture I showed you before. And this is graffiti that someone scrawl, um, kind of scrawled onto a wall. And it says, um, Alex Menos worships his God is written in Greek under there. And on top, you see this picture of this guy, presumably Alex Menos, um, worshiping this figure that has um, the lower half is human and the upper half is, looks like a donkey and it's being crucified on a cross. You see, for, for the people in the Roman Empire, it made no sense that Christians would deny their loyalty to Rome and choose to worship a crucified criminal instead. And it, it brought um, a ton of hostility over them. And it was for two reasons. First, it's that, that, that civil religion 
um, that was animating the Roman Empire. You see, the Roman Empire was massive, and they had, they had conquered like vast amounts of territory, and all of these people had different religions. And Rome did something that was fairly unique. Um, they didn't force everyone to adopt their gods. They said, we're going to let you keep your religion, um, but we need you to do something for us. We need you to begin to worship Caesar as God. We need you to begin to worship the empire, um, Rome herself, as a deity. And this was the glue that held the Roman Empire together. And so you can see why um, certain government officials are kind of getting concerned with Christians because the language they're using is incredibly subversive. You can look at Roman coins and they'll say things like, Caesar is Lord. Sound familiar to anybody? See, these coins um, often will also say Caesar, the son of God. And so the language that Christians are using of Jesus is coming into direct conflict with the empire. And these Roman officials who are always on the lookout for rebellion and sedition um, see this as a potentially subversive movement, not because Christians are stockpiling weapons um, or trying to overthrow the government through some violent means. It's simply their peaceful participation in society and declaring in the midst of that that Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not, that Jesus' kingdom demands ultimate authority and the kingdom of Rome does not, is bringing them into conflict. The second reason these tensions were developing was um, more, more on a relational level. Um, there, maybe your neighbor didn't care particularly if you um, were participating in these civil religious ceremonies, but your neighbor did care if you worshipped the gods of your hometown or of your home country. And the reason why is these people believed in these very jealous, capricious, kind of mean gods. And if you didn't sacrifice to them, if you didn't pray to them, if you didn't worship them, they were going to send um, an earthquake or a flood or a famine. And one of the hardest things about natural disasters is we have no one to blame. Whenever a flood hits or a hurricane hits, uh, we all just, um, our souls just sink. We feel like the pain. But, but there's no one we can really point our fingers at. Um, but that wasn't true during this time. So when an earthquake destroyed your home and killed your family and, and took out your friends, um, it wasn't just because we were living in a broken world. It was because the Christians weren't sacrificing. It was because the Christians weren't praying. And so there, there's these two forces that are animating animosity towards Christians, and it's this, this um, idea of civil religion and this hostility of their neighbors because they refused to worship their pagan gods. And... In the midst of all this, these Christians are, are struggling with the question of identity. For them, for, for us as um, like Westerners, often the way we compose identity is, is through self-esteem. It's how do I view myself? For them, the way they were primarily understanding their identity was through the system of honor and shame. How do other people see me? That's the way I build my identity. That's how I know who I am. That's still true of um, many other areas in the world today. And so to have your neighbors say, natural disasters are your fault, to have Roman officials say, you're seditious and rebellious, um, their identity was being stripped from them. And, and the interesting thing is Peter's response to this identity crisis for these Christians who lived 2,000 years ago and were suffering really brutal persecution his answer to their identity crisis is the same answer he gives us as people who are, are privileged, who are not facing persecution, um, and who, who generally can live pretty comfortable lives. His answer is the same to both of us. And um, he's going to give us two sort of contradictory answers. He's going to say, on the one hand, you're exiles, and on the other hand, you are the elect. And he's going to root this identity 
in the story of Israel. So let me read verse 1 to you again. Um, so Peter introduces himself and he says, To those who are, the, who are the elect exiles of the dispersion, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. These are all cities in Asia Minor. And so first he says, you are the elect. And Peter, throughout the book of 1 Peter, is going to be pulling images and passages from the Old Testament to help us reimagine our identity as the people of God. He's kind of giving us the language and the grammar of the people of Israel and saying, use this for your self-understanding. Use this to reimagine who you are. And so he starts with this concept of election. Um, listen to Deuteronomy 7, 6. This is Moses declaring to the people of God who they are. For you are a people holy to your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And the shocking thing about this choosing of the nation of Israel, the election of Israel, is that it's not for the sake of Israel herself. Israel is chosen for the sake of the nations. Isaiah 2 through 5 paints this incredible picture of the nations streaming to Jerusalem to receive the law of the Lord and that leading them to beat their weapons into plowshares and to, to embrace peace. And so Israel's election is not for her sake, it's for the sake of the world. Now, we could talk a lot more about election, and I do want to say um, election for us should primarily not be about us trying to figure out like who's in and who's out. Election is a relational reality that says God has chosen me, that God has chosen us. And I think we need to understand this on more than a cognitive level. We need to understand it on an effective level. Because it's really easy for me to forget that God cares for me. It's really easy for me to forget that God has chosen me and loves me and values me. And so I just want to read um, what God says we are. These are verses where, where God's speaking to his people and saying, this is who you are. Um, and I just want you to actually, can you, if you wouldn't mind, just close your eyes and open your palms in a posture of receiving. And I want you to like, hear these as the very words of God to you. This is who God says you are. I chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world that you might be holy and blameless before me. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving devotion. Can a woman forget the nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. You can open your eyes. In answer to the question, who am I? God answers us and he says, you are mine. You are chosen by me. You are loved by me. You are treasured by me. You are elect. But Peter doesn't stop with this idea of election. He keeps going. And this is where we get into kind of the tension of this passage in 1 Peter between election and exile. Um, the, the term exile is actually the Greek word peripedimos, and it's actually a political term. Um, it would be similar, it, it's hard to have like direct correspondence because governments and borders and politics are completely different today, but it's 
similar to someone being an immigrant to a country and not being a citizen is kind of the best correlation we can have. Um, Karen Jobes in her commentary explains it this way. The term peripedimos was used in the first century to designate someone who did not hold citizenship in the place where he resided and was therefore viewed as a foreigner. The lack of citizenship implied that such people did not enjoy all the rights and privileges of citizens. Moreover, as foreigners, they were not necessarily expected to hold the values, practices, and customs of their host culture. Because of such differences, foreigners were often looked upon suspiciously as potentially subversive to the established social order, an attitude not unfamiliar today. There's a lot of talk about like immigration and culture and how do we hold on to our culture. And um, I don't want to take a deep dive into that today because that's just not what I know about. Um, but I do know this. The way Peter says we as Christians are supposed to imagine ourselves is basically saying, imagine yourself as immigrants. This is the sort of identity I want you to embrace. And if that's the sort of identity we as Christians are supposed to embrace, I think that should probably say something about the way we as Christians talk about immigration. So I'm going to just, I'm going to table that. But as Christians, I'm... I'm sorry, I'm going to get on a tangent just a little bit. As Christians, we, we, we interact with, um, with those who are powerless, with those who are exploited. Um, we, we interact with them from a posture of mercy, not a posture of law. Nations need laws, and I, I totally, I, I get that, and I believe that. I think laws are very, very helpful. But as Christians, as Christians, our posture must be one of mercy, or we are implicitly not only denying the gospel, we're denying who we ourselves are. So, we'll keep going. So, we're going to be here all day if I keep on that. So, um, so, we, so we are elect and we're exiles. And then um, Peter, he tacks on this other word um, that's called, and it's dispersion. It's the Greek term dyspora. And this word is used generally in the, um, the Greek Old Testament in the technical sense for the people of Israel. So it's not just any dispersion. It's the scattering of the 12 tribes of Israel and Judah throughout the nations for the purpose, purposes of judgment because they forgot who they were, because they forgot their election. I told you that there's that passage in Isaiah that pictures the nations streaming into Jerusalem, learning the law of God, um, becoming a people of peace. Contrast that with Lamentations 1, 3, 3 through 5. This is the prophet Jeremiah, and he says, Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and servitude. That's probably affliction and servitude that Judah had done to other people, by the way. She dwells now among the nations, but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of distress. Rather than the nations coming to Zion, the roads to Zion mourn. None come to the festival, all her gates are desolate, her priests groan, her virgins have been afflicted, and she herself suffers bitterly. Rather than the picture of peace painted in Isaiah, it says her foes have become the head, her enemies prosper because the Lord has afflicted her. For the multitude of her transgressions, her children have gone away captives before the foe. Israel forgot who she was. She forgot that her election was for the sake of the world, and so she started to look like everyone else around her. She started to worship idols. 
She started to sacrifice her children. She started to participate in the exploitive and violent practices of the nations around her. And so she didn't wind up looking any different. And so Israel was sent into exile. And Despora, um, this was something that was done to Israel by these superpowers of Assyria and Babylon. And Despora, Despora is the strategy of empire to strip away culture, identity, language, and land. Despora takes away our identity, and yet Peter says, you need to understand yourselves in terms of exile and dispersion, like that's who you are. So you can feel the tension here. He's saying, you are elect, well, the people of Israel were elect, but because they didn't get their election, they were in exile. So how do we hold these two together? I think we have to. I think it's not about meeting somewhere in the middle, but just emphasizing both of these as much as we can to guard ourselves from, from two dangers. Because here's the thing. Any one of these by themselves is extremely dangerous. Election, the doctrine of election has a really, really bad track record. Um, Because election and isolation results in exploitation. I did not mean to make that rhyme so much, it sounds way too preachy, but it works. Election and isolation results in exploitation. I um, read some letters that were written by um, crusading knights in the Middle Ages this week. And they're writing things like, praise the Lord, God is good, I have been elected to rid Jerusalem of the pagan Saracens. And on the way, I sacked this Greek city and I got a bunch of gold, like I'm going to come back super rich, I'm so thankful that God has elected me for this task. Election and isolation results in exploitation. We, we're not, the, the American church is, participated in this as well, the idea of manifest destiny um, in our history, where we said, God has chosen us as a people to make sea from shining sea be the United States, and we're just going to roll over anybody who gets in our path. Because when, when you think that you are elect, but your values begin to align more with the world than they do with God, then the ends begin to justify the means, and you can do anything to protect yourself because you've been chosen by God. I mean, we see this today, right? If America is the elect nation of God, chosen by God, special, because nobody else really matters, and there probably aren't even Christians in other countries anyway, right? Like, we're pretty much by ourselves. If America is the elect nation of God, then we must protect our borders at any cost. When we take Election and isolation, the ends begin to justify the means. And as Christians, that is something that we cannot stand for. Now, in the reverse, exile and isolation can result in despair. There's a pendulum swing here. And again, I don't think it's about meeting in the middle. I think we need to emphasize both of these fully. And so, if we just think of ourselves as exiles, as people who are immigrants, who are in a place that's not our home, we can lose a vision of the renewing work that God is doing in our midst. And when we lose that vision, we can begin to lose hope. And so, if we just think of ourselves as exiles, we can begin to assimilate to our culture. We can begin to say, the values of Chicago, I guess those will be my values too. I really don't want to look different than my neighbor, or talk different than my neighbor, or think different than my neighbor. So I guess I'll just adopt all of those values. So election and isolation results in exploitation, but exile and isolation 
can result in despair, and it can also result in us beginning to assimilate to our cultures. I think in a certain sense, these two identities that we're given here are simply a positive way and a negative way of God saying to us, you are mine. Because we can hear that in a very different way. If we're, if, if we're really leaning into our identity as the elect, or if we're struggling with it, rather, and God says, you are mine, we're encouraged, we're like, I'm God's treasured possession. He loves me, he has cared for me, he's chosen for me. But if we're struggling with our exile, if we're beginning to look like our host culture, and God says, you are mine, our reaction might be, I'm not anybody's. I'm not a slave. God can't own me. I'm my own person. And yet the overwhelming metaphor that someone like Paul uses is slave. We often translate it servant. The word is slave. I am a slave of Christ. So I think both this idea of election and this idea of exile is God saying in a positive way and in a negative way, you are mine. Now, the funny thing about identity, at least all the identities I mentioned at the beginning, vocation, relationships, hobbies, those are all earned identities. Those identities are things we work for. Not so with this identity. You do not have to earn your identity as an elect exile. Listen to verse 2. So we're elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. So our identity as elect exiles is grounded in the identity and the activity of the triune God. As Christians, we believe that God is Trinity, and that basically means that God is one God, three persons. Please don't ask me to explain it. Um, There's been a lot written on it. We can talk about it in some ways that are better than others, but ultimately this is a mystery that should cause us to wonder and to worship rather than um, a mental puzzle that we should try to solve. I love what Karl Barth says on this. He says, God remains a mystery to us because he himself is so clear and certain to us. The more clearly we see God, the more confounded we're going to be by him. The, 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 The closer we get to seeing God for who he is, the more it's going to cause us to be like, I I don't quite get who God is. I can't put him in a box. I can't explain him. But he should be worshipped. He should be adored. He should be loved. So our identity is grounded in the identity and the activity of the triune God. It's an identity that's initiated by the foreknowledge of God the Father. This identity is a gracious gift to us. God is the one who starts us off on this journey. He's This is not, again, an identity to be earned. It's a gracious gift to be received. This is an identity that's located in the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. Um, Sanctification just means to make something sacred or to make something holy. And we can get into some trouble when we begin to think about holiness as merely ethics, that holiness is just like things we do. Holiness in the Old Testament is primarily a ritual category of nearness to God's presence. That has massive implications on what you do. Don't get me wrong. But if we begin to divorce that idea of proximity as holiness um, from ethics, um, we begin to lose a vision, like a full vision of what holiness 
truly is. So, so holiness is proximity before holiness is ethics. And secondly, especially for First Peter, holiness is not disengagement with the world. Holiness looks like engagement. First Peter doesn't really have a category for someone who runs away and tries to be holy somewhere by themselves because they don't want to be touched by the world. For Peter, holiness only makes sense in the midst of unholiness. Holiness is holiness precisely because of the contrast. It's like having a candle um, in midday. It doesn't do anything, but you bring a candle in a dark room and it shines. So don't mistake holiness here for disengagement. For, for, for Peter, holiness is engagement, and I will get into that later in 1 Peter. And I love the, the language of location, that we're, we are in the, Holy Spirit, in the sanctification of the Holy Spirit, because Peter's gone to great lengths to say, you are not at home anywhere you live, which kind of, kind of leaves us with a little bit of homesickness. It's like, where do I belong? Where do I find safety? Where do I find security? And Peter says it's, it's actually in the presence of the Holy Spirit. That, that is where I've called you to be at home. And as I was reading this and preparing this, God just kind of asked me a question, um, and it was really convicting. He said, Reader, are you most at home in the presence of the Spirit? Do you want to linger there? Do you feel most safe, most secure? Is that, is that where you want to go to when you're tired, when you're stressed, when you need rest? Is it, is it in the presence of the Spirit that you find those things or you find them in other things? And so I'm going to take God's question to me and I'm going to turn it back to you and ask you, are you at home in the presence of the Spirit? Are you most at home in, in the presence of God? Or are you anxious? Does it kind of make you want to, want to leave to go do something else? Are there other things, um, maybe even good things, that you run to to find security and safety and peace? So we're in the Spirit. We're in the sanctification of the Spirit. And finally, um, our identity is, is oriented towards, and its goal, it finds its goal, it's directed towards obedience to Jesus Christ. Now, I've been saying over and over again, like, our identity can't be earned. But God does ask us to live into our identity. He simply says, he doesn't say, become something you're not, but he says, be who you are. And so, um, we've been given this identity of elect exiles so that we can walk in obedience to Jesus Christ. And this should cause us to pray with um, St. Augustine, O Lord, command what you will and give what you command. O Lord, command what you will and give what you command. And here's the promise there. God always gives what he commands. God has given you an identity as elect, as exiles. And he's commanded us to live it out in the world. There's that final little phrase, and for for the sprinkling of the blood. And this is, again, Peter looking back to the Old Testament. Um, And there's this, this... Um, Moses goes to Mount Sinai after they've been freed from Egypt to receive the law. God's presence descends in smoke and fire. Moses comes down. He tells the people what God has said. And after he's told them this, there's this kind of weird and gruesome ceremony where he sacrifices these animals. He puts half of the blood on the altar and the other half he flings on the people of Israel. They're literally marked out 
by the blood of this sacrifice. And in the same way, Peter's saying, that those, those men and women thousands and thousands of years ago were marked out by the blood of that animal sacrifice, so too we are marked out by the blood of Jesus. We are people who has been set apart, and it should cause us to, um, to lean into obedience. And we should be cautioned, because when that happened to the people of Israel, they will say, whatever, they said, whatever the Lord says, we will do. Just tell us what he's going to say, and, and we will do it. And then we read the rest of the Old Testament, and we see them continue to struggle with those words. And we're going to continue to struggle with those words. But I do want us to come to a place this morning where um, we so clearly hear God say to us, you are mine, that we say, Lord, whatever you said, we will do. And we can expect to come back here and come to God in repentance and say, God, I didn't do any of the things you said I would do. But, th- but this is what God is calling us into. So as Christians, it's easy to live in a constant state of identity crisis. We struggle with our identity as exiles. When we struggle with this, we, um, it's easy for us to assimilate to the world, take on its practices, take on its values. Here's a question um, that I often ask myself. Am I being more formed by the city of Chicago or am I being more formed by the gospel of Jesus Christ? I know a lot of you, um, some of you grew up here, a lot of you moved here from the suburbs or from out of state. And I just think back to like before you came to Chicago. And I just invite you to ask, your question, ask yourself the question, do my values align more with the gospel now or less? So for some of you, the answer could be more, and we should like, celebrate that, because I do think Chicago shapes us in some really, really positive ways. But there is a danger here. I mean, I think about myself before I moved um, to Chicago and afterwards, and I think I'm much more oriented towards achievement now that I live here. I'm much more oriented towards competition. I'm much more oriented towards comfort. What are, what are the values of Chicago that you've allowed to kind of seep in, that you've taken on, that you've kind of forgotten that we as Christians are supposed to live in a state of exile? And again, don't take this as like Chicago only forms us in bad ways. We, we don't believe that at all, but we'd be amiss if we didn't talk about the dangers of living in a city like this as well. So we can struggle with our identity as exiles. We can also struggle with our identity as elect. Some of you are doing an incredible job of resisting the malformation of the city, the the city trying to form you um, away from the gospel of Jesus, but you're wondering if it's worth it because you do not feel the presence of God in your life. You have not heard God say to you in maybe months or years, you are mine. And so you're wondering if if it's worth it. Is it really worth the fight? And I think, again, the answer to both of these struggles, whether we struggle with our election or we struggle with our identity as exiles, is, is God's voice, hearing God's voice say, you are mine. You are my treasured possession. I have chosen you. I care for you. I love you. I am a good father to you. I want to end with a poem by a man who um, lived his life well as an elect exile. His name was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I know many of you have heard of him. Um, He was a pastor and a theologian in Nazi Germany um, right before the Nazis took over and also during um, the Nazi occupation of Germany. And he was one of the very few um, Christians who resisted um, Hitler's plan and 
for his resistance, he was um, thrown into a concentration camp and ultimately was executed. And he wrote this poem um, from his jail cell um, shortly before his execution. It's called, Who Am I? Who am I? They often tell me I stepped from my cell's confinement calmly, cheerfully, firmly, like a squire from his country house. Who am I? They often tell me I used to speak to my warders freely, friendly, clearly, as though it were mine to command. Who am I? They also tell me I bore the days of misfortune equally, smilingly, proudly, like one accustomed to win. Am I really then all which other men tell of? Or, I am, or am I only what I myself know of myself? Restless and longing and sick. Like a bird in a cage, struggling for breath as though hands were compressing my throat, yearning for colors, for flowers, for the voices of birds, thirsting for words of kindness, for neighborliness, tossing in expectation of great events. Powerlessly trembling for friends at infinite distance, weary and empty at praying, at thinking, at making faint, and ready to say farewell to it all? Who am I? This or the other? Am I a person today and tomorrow another? Am I both at once? A hypocrite before others or before myself, a contemptibly woebegone weakling? Or is something within me still like a beaten army, fleeing in disorder from a victory already achieved? Who am I? They mock me these lonely questions of mine. Whoever I am, thou knowest, O God, I am thine. Would you pray with me? God, I... I just sense that in this room there's some people who haven't heard you say, um, I am thine. That there's some people who, um, who just haven't heard your voice in a really long time. Maybe they never have. Or maybe um, it's just been, been, been a slow drift. Maybe for some of them, they've, they've been struggling to hear it. They've been yearning to hear it, and it, it, they just keep hitting a wall. And so, God, for, 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 those, of, for those people um, sitting out here today who just want to hear your voice, who want to, you to, to, to whisper in their ear, you are mine, you are elect, you are beloved, you are chosen, you are my treasured possession. God, I just pray in faith that you would do that this morning. That you would say to them, you are mine. Whether that be in the midst of worship or communion, whether it's when they're back near the prayer banner praying with someone, God, would you speak those words over us as a body? You are mine. And would would we just embrace you as our good father? Not because we've been chosen for our own sake, but because you have said you are mine so that we might be a force of blessing and renewal to the world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 So we're going to uh, enter into a time of, of worship and response this morning. And there are
couple of different ways that we do that here. Um, you know, first, we, we're, we're going to take communion together.